For those of you who are married, I have a question for you. Now, you're a married couple, but are you married friends? That is the question at the heart of the series we're currently in. Uh, as we look at the research of world-renowned relationship expert John Gottman. After 40 years of researching couples, he can accurately predict divorce within 91% accuracy. But he's also developed a research-based, supported set of principles of, for what makes a happily married couple and what makes them different than everybody else. So here's what Gottman says about it. At the heart of the seven principles approach is the simple truth that happy marriages are based on deep friendship. By this, I mean a mutual respect for and enjoyment of each other's company. These couples tend to know each other intimately. They are well-versed in each other's likes, dislikes, personality quirks, hopes, and dreams. They have an abiding regard for each other and express this fondness, not just in big ways, but through small gestures day in and day out. See, this quote perfectly introduces Gottman's first two principles for making marriage work. Enhance your love maps and nurture your fondness and admiration. Now, one of those is probably clear, while the other, uh, maybe not so much. We're going to start with the unclear one. A love map is Gottman's term for that part of your brain where you store all the information about your partner's life. Now, personally, I find that term strange. It sounds more like a Valentine pirate side quest. On the other hand, I'd watch that show as long as, as long as they included an animated talking animal because, you know, everything is better with animated talking animals. Just ask Disney. Now, back to, back to the topic. So the principle of building love maps focuses on the importance of building a deep and nuanced understanding of your partner's hobbies, likes, and dislikes. But it's much more than just an online profile. It's also knowing their inner world, their fears and worries, joys and dreams. And when it's done well, it's constantly updated as life and circumstances change. Now, Gottman argues that a strong, robust love map leads to the next principle. Nurture your fondness and admiration. So here's what Gottman says. Happily married couples don't just know each other. They build on and enhance this knowledge in many ways. They use their love maps to express not only their understanding of each other, but their fondness and admiration as well. So what is fondness and admiration? It's routinely focusing on the positive qualities of your partner and the positive experience that you've shared together rather than dwelling on the negative aspects like personal offenses and conflicts. So why is this principle so important? And that's because according to Gottman, fondness and admiration 
serve as a buffer against negativity that can corrupt a relationship. They enhance, they enhance mutual respect and appreciation. They help you navigate negative disagreements. And they also help you ch face challenges more lovingly. So what does a relationship look like where you're good friends? And you deeply know your partner and you're overflowing with fondness and admiration for them. What does a principle one and two relationship look like? Well, believe it or not, the Bible has one of the best pictures of that type of relationship that found in any sacred text throughout the history of the world. It's nestled in the Old Testament between the history books and the prophet books. And it's the most unexpected book. It's a collection of love poems called the Song of Songs, sometimes called the Song of Solomon. Now, the core structure of this book is a back and forth conversation between a man, a, a young woman and a young man who are deeply in love with each other. It's full of vivid imagery, strange to us, but very fitting for its time. It's romantic, it's evocative, it's even a bit racy. So be forewarned. And like any good love poem or Nicholas Sparks novel, it's not meant to be analyzed. It's meant to be felt. And experienced. Now, before we dive in, I want to give you a little sample from the first couple chapters. But to do this properly, I'm going to need a little help from my beloved Pamphola. This is selected passages from Song of Songs, chapters one and two. I liken you, my darling, to a mare among Pharaoh's chariot horses. Your cheeks are beautiful with earrings, your neck with a string of jewels. We will make for you earrings of gold studded with silver. While the king was at his table, my perfume spread its fragrance. My beloved is to me a sachet of myrrh resting between my breasts. My beloved is to me a cluster of henna blossoms from the vineyards of Engedi. How beautiful you are, my darling. Oh, how beautiful, your eyes are doves. How handsome you are, my beloved. Oh, how charming, and our bed is verdant. The beams of our house are cedars, the rafters are firs. I am a rose of Sharon, a lily of the valleys. Like a lily among thorns is my darling among the young women. Like an apple tree among the trees of the forest is my beloved among the young men. I delight to sit in his shade, and his fruit is sweet to my taste. Listen, my beloved, look. Here he comes, leaping across the mountains, bounding over the hills. My beloved is like a gazelle or a young stag. Look. There he stands behind our wall, gazing through the windows, peering through the lattice. My dove in the clefts of the rock, 
in the hiding places on the mountainside. Show me your face. Let me hear your voice, for your voice is sweet and your face is lovely. My beloved is mine and I am his. And this is the word of the Lord. Now that you are sufficiently inspired, confused, or maybe even a little weirded out, then here's a Bible Project video to help you understand this book, Song of Songs, a little better. It's about seven minutes, so sit back and enjoy. The Song of Songs. It's a well-known but not so well-understood book of the Bible. It's eight chapters of love poetry. And while there is an introduction and a conclusion, the book doesn't have any kind of rigid literary design, and that's because it's a collection of poems. They're not meant to be dissected or taken apart. They're meant to be read as a flowing whole and simply enjoyed. The first line of the book tells us that it's the Song of Songs, which is a Hebrew idiom like the Holy of Holies or the King of Kings. It's a Hebrew way of saying the greatest thing. So this is the greatest song of all songs. Then we're told in the first line that this Song of Songs is of Solomon, which could mean that he's the author. His name does begin the book after all. But as you read the poems, you discover that the main voice is that of a woman called the Beloved. And while there is also a male voice, it does not seem to be Solomon's. Solomon is mentioned a couple times in the poems, but he's never a speaker. And you do have to admit, Solomon is a very odd candidate as the author of this book, given the fact that he had 700 wives. For the lovers in the Song of Songs, they are the only ones in the world for each other. So the of Solomon likely means in the wisdom tradition of Solomon. He was known for his wisdom, his poetry, his love of learning about every part of life. And Solomon became the father of wisdom literature in Israel. And so his legacy is here carried on through a collection of love poems that explores the human experience of love and sexual desire. The opening poem introduces us to the basic theme of this book. We hear the voice of the young woman who delights in her man, a shepherd. Now she's not married to him yet, but it becomes clear that they're engaged and they cannot wait to be together. From the introduction, the poems flow back and forth from the woman's voice to the man's, shifting from scene to scene without any kind of clear linear sequence or storyline. The poems move in these symphonic cycles and key images and ideas get repeated and developed. So one of the basic themes uniting the poems is the intense desire that this couple has for each other expressed through their constant seeking and finding. So after the opening poem, they're separated but on the hunt for one another. So the woman calls out or she'll wake up from a dream or go looking for her lover and more than once they'll find each other, they'll embrace and then right when things start to get a bit racy the scene will suddenly end and a new one will start, they're separated, looking for each other, and on it goes. Another repeated theme is the joy of the couple's physical attraction for one another. So multiple times, they'll pause and describe each other with these elaborate metaphors. And here it's very helpful to know that these images and metaphors in Hebrew poetry are not primarily visual. If you try and paint a picture of these people based on the metaphors, you will end up with something that looks very, very strange. What you're supposed to do is reflect on the meaning of these images as they relate to the man and the woman. So you'll read through the poetic cycles and the tension will keep building and their desire and joy and attraction. And this spiraling repetition is a poetic way of heightening and focusing on the mystery and power of sexual love.
It all comes together in the conclusion, which pauses to summarize what these poems are all about. Love is as strong as death. Its passions are as severe as the grave. Its flashes are of fire, a divine flame. Many waters cannot extinguish love. Rivers cannot sweep it away. If one were to give all the wealth of one's house for love, he would be utterly scorned. The poem highlights the power and the intensity of love, how it's both beautiful but also dangerous. Like fire, love can destroy people if it's abused or be life-giving if it's protected. Ultimately, love expresses the insatiable human longing to know and be fully known and desired by another. Love is one of the most transcendent and mysterious experiences in human life, and as a part of the Bible's wisdom tradition, this book says it's a gift from God. After this, there's an odd poem about Solomon trying to do what the previous poem just said was impossible, to buy love. The woman rejects Solomon's offer, and then the book concludes with the man and the woman. They're separate once more on the hunt for each other. He calls to hear her voice. She begs him to run away with her, and that's how the book ends. Just totally open-ended. But that's a lot like love, which never truly concludes, because there's always more to discover and pursue in your beloved. And so true love has no end, and neither does this book. Now, through history, the big question raised by the Song of Songs is, what on earth is love poetry doing in the Bible? There have been three main interpretations of this book throughout history. In Jewish tradition, it's been read as an allegory, each character a symbol. So the woman is Israel, the man is God, and their love is a symbol of the covenant between God and Israel made at Mount Sinai and the giving of the Torah. This view flowed into the Christian tradition, but the characters were swapped. So it's about Christ's love for his people, the church. And this interpretation was inspired by Paul's words in Ephesians 5, that a Christian husband's love for his wife is a symbol of Christ's love for the church. What's interesting is that in the last hundred years, archaeological discoveries among Israel's ancient neighbors in Egypt and Babylon has turned up all kinds of ancient love poetry that's very similar in language and imagery to the Song of Songs. We see that love poetry was a meaningful part of Israel's cultural environment, which has led most scholars today to view the Song of Songs as what it presents itself to be, an arrangement of Israelite love poetry reflecting on the divine gift of love. But that doesn't mean that it's only ancient love poetry. There's a key feature of these poems that sticks out when you read them as a part of the Old Testament, and that's the overwhelming use of garden imagery. There are powerful echoes of the Garden of Eden and the idyllic scene between the married couple in the early chapters of Genesis. So the image of the man and the woman naked and vulnerable, but completely unified and safe with one another, this resonates in the background of the Song of Songs. It's as if in these poems we are witnessing the love of a couple whose relationship is untainted by selfishness and sin. And so ultimately the song holds out hope that even though our own relationships are so often distorted by selfishness, love is a transcendent gift and it's meant to point us to something greater, to the gift of God's love that will one day permeate and transform his beloved world. And that's what the Song of Songs is all about. So what can we as modern couples dating or married or singles wanting to date or wanting to be married, what can we learn from the Song of Songs? And how on earth does all of this 
tie back to Gottman's research. So let's start with the obvious one. This love poem is full of fondness and admiration. The man and the woman absolutely adore each other. See, Gottman's principle of fondness and admiration is seeing the best in the other person and saying it out loud. See, and this, this book in the Bible is a masterclass in that. She calls him my beloved. He calls her my darling. She describes him as handsome, charming, a king. He describes her as beautiful, lovely, majestic. They shower each other with affirmations. My favorite come out, comes out of the man's speech in chapter 4. Here are just a few of the things he says about his beloved. Your eyes are like doves. Your hair is like a flock of goats. Your neck is like a tower of stone. Your breasts are like two fawns. Your, your lips are like a scarlet ribbon. Okay, that one's pretty good. The other's a little strange, but really good for its time. And then he concludes with, you are altogether beautiful. My darling, there is no flaw in you. Dang, that guy's got game. See, so that's the first one. Now the second, there's another major theme in this book. And that one connects back to Gottman's love map concept. That, and this idea of intentionally knowing your partner really well. So Song of Songs is eight chapters full of seeking and finding. Seeking and finding. The man and woman, they take turns seeking after their love and then eventually finding them. So listen to some of these verses. My beloved stands behind our wall, gazing through the windows, peering through the lattice. Arise, come, my darling, my beautiful one, come with me. I slept, but my heart was awake. Listen, my beloved is knocking. Open to me, my sister, my darling, my dove, my flawless one. All night long I looked for the one my heart loves, but did not find him. If you find my beloved, tell him that I am faint with love. I found the one my heart loves. I held him and would not let him go. It's like seeking is a natural outcome of loving. Seeking is a natural outcome of loving. Asking open-ended questions is seeking after your spouse. See, isn't that the heart of knowing someone? Is seeking them. Listening well is seeking after what they're saying. And the minute, the minute you stop trying to seek after them, you stop trying to understand their inner world, you stop seeking after them. See, and that perpetual and, and rhythm of seeking and finding 
is part of what makes the man and the woman in Song of Songs so compelling. It shows how much they truly love each other. Because seeking is a natural outcome of loving. And when you stop seeking, at worst, it means you no longer love. At best, it means you no longer love enough to seek after them. So, how do we have a relationship that is more like the couple in Song of Songs? Full of affirmations, full of seeking out your beloved, full of understanding. Well, unfortunately, like any good love poem, the Song of Songs doesn't tell us how to do that. It's not an instruction manual. It's an inspiration. So it doesn't really say how to capture that type of love. But luckily, Gottman's research does. So let's go back to his first two principles that we talked about for making marriages work. First is enhance your love maps. Second, nurture your fondness and admiration. So let's get really practical. Here are practical, concrete steps that you can do this week to improve your relationship. And these are all scientifically proven after 40 years of researching couples. So let's start with enhancing our love maps. Ask open-ended questions. These are questions that don't have a yes, no, right, wrong answer to them. They're open-ended. And they spark more conversation, more follow-up questions. The, and this is the only way to discover somebody's inner world, their world of hopes and dreams, fears and desires. Second, update your information. If you've been together for a while, you might need to get a little system update with your collection of information. Your map might be out of date because life changes, circumstances change, dreams change, fears change. And so someone who's doing this well is constantly updating, looking for those things that might have changed in the last few months, years, decades. Third, listen actively. Listen with your full attention. Put down the phone. Turn off the TV or the tablet. Turn toward them and give them your full attention. See, active listening demonstrates that you value your partner's thoughts and feelings. And lastly, fourth, express genuine interest. Express genuine interest. Show curiosity about your partner's life. Make it clear that you want to find out what they have to say and that you believe what they have to say is important and worthy of your attention. Now, I want you to pick one of these four things 
that you can do this week in your marriage or in another relationship of yours? I want you to pick one of these right now. I'm not going to move on until you pick one. So for me, this week, I'm going to focus on asking for better open-ended questions. I tend to ask pretty plain questions. This is something I need to grow in. Okay, let's move on. So next, let's talk about the next, the number two principle from Gottman. Nurture your fondness and, as, and admiration. So let's talk about some action steps here. First, regularly affirm your partner. Regular, even daily affirmations is one of the most powerful things you can do in your marriage. Simply say, I affirm you for, and then fill in the blank. It can be something that they did, but even better, affirm them for something that they are. And then say that often. Number two, make an admiration list. Now, what's this? Well, you make a list of all the qualities you admire in your partner. Just write them down, write it onto your phone. See, this simple act, even if you never share it, but you should, this simple act reshapes how you think about them and the whole relationship. Third, share stories from your past. Gottman calls this historical appreciation. Share stories of the early days of your relationship, the dating days of your relationship. Focus on what attracted you to one another in the first place. And see, this, this can help rekindle those feelings, those deep, wonderful feelings of love and admiration. And lastly, say positive things daily. Shoot for Godman's five to one golden ratio Five positive interactions to every one negative interaction. Make it a habit to say positive things about your spouse to other people. Never trash your spouse to others. But gloat, brag on them. I love to brag on Fofoa to other people. So, okay, now I want you to pick one of these. Pick one of these four that you want to focus on this week in your marriage or in another relationship that you have. Okay, take a look at the list. So for my marriage, I want to bring back affirmations. So we learned this very early in our marriage and we did it a lot. We, almost, we did it even daily sometimes. And it's not an exaggeration to say that these daily affirmations might have even saved our marriage through some really difficult times. So I, I want to I affirm my wife more. Now, in closing, let's remember the essence of what binds us together in marriage is not just the vows that we say, but the daily acts of love, understanding, and appreciation that we show each other. Song of Songs painted a picture, and Gottman's research showed us how to live it out. In both of these, one thing is true. The heart 
of a thriving relationship lies in our commitment to nurturing a deep friendship with our partner. The longtime former editor of Psychology Today, Sam Keen, once wrote, we come to love not by finding a perfect person, but by learning to see an imperfect person perfectly. And isn't that what God does with you? Through Christ, God doesn't see a sinful person, but a forgiven person. Through Christ, God doesn't see a broken person, but a whole person. And through Christ, God doesn't see a condemned person, but a free person. He sees you, an imperfect person, perfectly through Jesus Christ. Doesn't your spouse deserve to receive the, the same thing you've received? Let's pray. God, you have loved us first when we didn't deserve it, when we couldn't earn it. You loved us. You know us deeply and you love us anyway. So thank you, Lord. Thank you for that amazing gift. Thank you for that model of how we can love our spouses. Holy Spirit, empower us. Empower us to do more. Empower us to love more. First, to love God more and receive more of his love in return. And then to turn around and love our spouses our kids, our parents, our friends, as an, out of an overflow of that love. Help us all, for all who are married, help us be better friends. Help us pursue, help us be gentle, help us know deeply Help us admire. Holy Spirit, we can't do any of that on ourselves. But in you and through you, we can. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.